I've been thinking about scavenger hunts this week. Another lifetime ago, I was a youth pastor, and I inflicted all kinds of fun on my students through scavenger hunts. You know what I'm talking about. Many of you have done the same thing. Perhaps some of you in your own engagements sent men, you sent your would-be spouse on a wild goose chase, one clue after another, each one unfolding step after step until they arrive at the ultimate destination and their hopes are realized. That's really what scavenger hunts are, aren't they? They're clues that lead us along the way. One clue leading to another clue leading to another clue, and all of those clues ultimately culminating in a final destination, a final gift, a final possession. And that is exactly what we have been undertaking over the course of the last few weeks and will still yet undertake in the coming weeks. We are on a scriptural scavenger hunt. One clue after another, steadily unfolding our destination until we arrive. And what we see is step by step, clue by clue, we are beholding Christ in all of the Scriptures. Christ is really the goal. He's the object. He's the destination. There's no other place to land such that if we were to land in any other place, we will have gotten very off track in a disastrous way. Today we're going to be considering the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham, and of the way that it unfolds over the course of redemptive history and finds its fulfillment in Christ, and we're going to consider what in the world that has to do with us. You heard Abraham, or you heard Adam talk about our father Abraham. Is that how we're to think about him? I'm going to suggest that it is in Christ, and that that has everything to do with us, all good things to us because of the promises that God made. Inside your bulletin, you will have received one of these inserts. It's going to help you follow along with the flow of my sermon today. If you're a note taker, you might be helped by taking notes. All of you will be helped by having your Bibles open to follow along as we read a number of passages and connect the dots, ultimately looking to behold Christ from all of Scripture. We are going to be looking, as you can see there, in Genesis 12, and that's actually meant and be there to say Genesis 15 and also Genesis 17, but I want for our Scripture reading into my preaching to read from Genesis 15. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're going to go all the way through verse 21, so if you would stand with me one more time for the public reading of God's Word, Genesis 15. Let's consider the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And so as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and a great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the, per- the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Two Sundays ago, we considered the covenant of works with Adam. Last Sunday, I preached on the Noahic covenant. And I aim to show you how these two covenants establish and govern what we might refer to as the kingdom of creation, that they pertain to all men everywhere. And that's because both covenants are ultimately concerned with the same realm, that is God's creation. And both covenants, that covenant of works and the Noahic covenant, both involve the same parties, namely God and all of mankind in Adam. Because of Adam's disobedience, the covenant of works condemned and then cursed mankind. And then because of the Noahic covenant, often, as I said last week, often referred to as the covenant or the common grace covenant, The Noahic covenant preserves mankind and stabilizes God's creation. God promises He's never going to judge the earth again, just like He did. He's going to stabilize it so that all of His gospel promises might come to pass. And these two covenants, the broken covenant of works and the stabilizing covenant of Noah, are the contexts for God's own unfolding promises in the covenants that follow. They form the context for the covenants that follow. That's where our story is going to pick up again. As soon as Noah left the ark, he was commissioned to rule the land. But as we see as the narrative goes on, Noah couldn't even rule his own flesh. Adam sought to cover his nakedness and shame, but Noah shamelessly exposed his nakedness. The preacher of righteousness, as the writer of Hebrews called him, proved unrighteous. So the promise of a seed may have preserved Noah and his family, but Noah, by virtue of his own life, is not the promised seed. He was a kind of second Adam, standing over a kind of new creation following judgment, but he wasn't the second Adam. Well, in no time, that same darkness that had spread over the earth before Noah regained its strength. The serpent unified his seed against the Almighty, not military force, 
but by a civilization united in spiritual rebellion. Sin and death spread to all men because all men sinned. The world was cursed from Adam's broken covenant of works. And so God judged humanity again. Only this time, He didn't destroy the earth like He did the previous time. He remembered His covenant with Noah. No, this time, instead of drowning humanity, He dispersed humanity, confusing their language and spreading them over the face of the earth. And the place that He spread them from was called Babel. It was Babylon, that spirit of man and of human civilization that is bent on opposition against God and His gospel. Yet even in all the darkness and the wickedness and rebellion against God, the hope of the gospel was still alive. In verses 9 of Genesis 11, we read of God's curse. He says, From there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God cursed humanity once again. But then, in the very next verse, Moses makes this announcement. These are the generations of Shem. You say, well, that doesn't sound so remarkable. After all the darkness, the hope of the gospel is still alive. Satan gathered his forces in dark array, but the God's promise of a serpent-crushing offspring remained intact. And so you may remember from our previous weeks, from Adam and Eve came Seth, and from the line of Seth came Noah. Noah had a son named Shem, and from the line of Shem would come a man named Terah, who, and I quote, fathered Abram. later to be called Abraham, the father of nations, the father of Israel from whom would ultimately come the serpent-crushing seed according to God's promised covenant of grace. Beloved, I want to consider these things by putting our eyes first on Genesis 12. We'll get to 15 and then we'll jump to 17, but I want to begin in Genesis 12 to consider Abraham's or God's covenant with Abraham. And as we do, we're going to see three things. In Genesis 12, we're going to see the covenant initiated. Then in Genesis 15, verses 9 to 21, we're going to see the covenant confirmed. And then we're going to hop over to Genesis 17 and see the covenant expanded. The covenant initiated, confirmed, and expanded. Follow along with me. At the close of chapter 11... God providentially moved Abram's family into the land of Canaan. After his father Terah died, God called Abram, verse 1 of chapter 12. He said, go from your country to the land that I'm going to show you. Now notice, Abraham had never seen this country. He was already a sojourner in a foreign place. But there in verses 2 and 3, God made Abram a promise. And Abram believed God. And so in verse 4, Abram went, just as the Lord had told him, and Abraham's family, beginning with Lot, went along with him. The writer of Hebrews recounts this fateful moment in this way. This is how the Holy Spirit is interpreting the Spirit-inspired text of Genesis 12. It says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. 
He had no proof. He had no evidence. His eyes could not see it. All he had was God's naked word in the form of a promise. Faith, the writer of Hebrews said, is the assurance of things hoped for, and it is the conviction of things unseen. That's what we see in Abram. God gave Abram a command and a promise, and in faith, Abram believed and obeyed God. And Abram's faith is a lesson to us, isn't it? It's like that old John Samus hymn says, Trust and obey, there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Abram is a model of what it looks like to trust and obey, even when you can't see, to believe that God's Word is the ultimate and the final arbiter of reality, not what I can see, not what I feel, not what I perceive, and not what any man tells me. At the end of the day, it is what God says that I'm going to put my hope and my faith in. And that's what we see in Abram. So Abram trusted God's promise. He obeyed God's command. And thus begins the further unfolding of God's promised covenant of grace. Now, we're going to survey God's covenant with Abram in three parts. I've already told you, in Genesis 12, we have the initiation of the covenant. And then we're going to skip over to Genesis 15, and we're going to, we're going to consider the confirmation of the covenant. And then in Genesis 17, we'll consider the expansion of the covenant. That's three parts. Not three separate covenants. It is three movements to one covenant, initiated, confirmed, and expanded. And so here we are in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred into your father's house to the land that I show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem to the yoke of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.' And so he built there an altar to the Lord." who had appeared to him. God won't ratify His covenant with Abraham for yet another few chapters. But here what we see in Genesis 12 is God's covenant with Abraham in embryonic form. What begins as an acorn here in Genesis 12 is going to grow up into an oak by Genesis 17. And two things are going to stand out from these verses. Two things that ultimately belong in every biblical covenant. We have parties and we have promises. Remember that God always transacts His covenants through a representative, that is, a federal head, one who is a legal representative of all of those whom they represent. That is, one person who stands for the whole. And that's what we see in Abram. Abram is the representative of all of his offspring. But here we also see the scope of God's promises, including not only Abraham's offspring in verse 2, 
But also in verse 3, the scope of his promises include all the families of the earth. It is a multinational, worldwide gospel promise. All of these, your offspring and all the families of the earth, will receive and enjoy God's promise through the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abram. But what promises does God ultimately make to the covenant parties, to Abram and his offspring, and ultimately to all the nations of the earth? What are the promises that He makes? Two promises loom large over the passage, the inheritance of Canaan and worldwide blessing. According to verse 7, the land would belong to Abram's physical descendants. Do you see that there? This is not just the beginning of a covenant, as I've said. It's also the beginning of a kingdom through a covenant. This is the embryonic beginnings of the kingdom of Israel. But the kingdom of Israel in the land of Canaan isn't ultimately God's end game. Abraham's physical offspring, set as a physical kingdom in a physical land, serves a greater purpose. Namely, God's final purpose is to bless not just Abraham's physical offspring, but the entire world according to His promised covenant of grace. In other words, through Abram's family, whose inheritance is Canaan, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so here we have all the raw materials for the Abrahamic covenant. You have a land for a seed who will be a blessing to the world. And a few chapters later, God's going to repeat all of these promises, and He's going to formally ratify them in a covenant ceremony. That's what we just saw in Genesis 15, but go there with me. Genesis 15. That from the outset of the chapter, God repeats His promises to Abram. Beginning in verse 5, He promised that He would give this old, childless man offspring that are as numerous as the sand of the sea, and in verse 7, he will place those offspring in the land of Canaan. It's the exact same thing that he said in Genesis 12. He's just repeating the promises. God's people in God's place under God's Word. It was the promise of a kingdom. So, Abram believed God's promise. That's what we see there in verse 6. But even so, Abram, as we see there in verse 8, wanted proof. He says, how am I to know? Now understand, Abram isn't waffling ultimately between belief and unbelief. He wants something tangible to be assured that God would keep His word. He's asking in faith because he knows that God can keep it. And so in verses 9 and following, God in His mercy formalizes His promises in the form of a covenant by putting sanctions or threats in the place to guarantee its fulfillment. Remember, a promise is just a promise. And a command is just a command. But what turns a promise or a command into a covenant are sanctions or threats that guarantee their fulfillment. And that's what we see here. I read all the way through this, beginning in verse 9, all the way through 21, so we won't do it again. But I do want to scan through it. That by giving Abram a a vision of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, passing through the middle of the carcasses, God is making an oath. He's saying, may the same be done to me. 
And more also, if I fail to keep my promise. This is the nature of a threat in a covenant. The Hebrew word berit means to cut, and that's what we see here. It's to swear a solemn oath under threat. And we do this all the time, don't we, when we make promises. We say, I swear by my firstborn child. Now, we don't mean we're really going to give away our firstborn child. At least I hope not. But it's, to, it's meant to convey the seriousness of the commitment that we're making. I am so serious in my commitment to fulfilling my promise that I will give you Nicholas if I fail. That's what God's doing here. So we do this all the time in the way that we make promises, and God's saying the same thing. May it be unto me. May I die. May I be like these animals if I fail to keep these promises. Well, chapter 16 begins with a loaded statement. And can I just say, by the way, first of all, it should strike you as obvious then that God has every intent to keep His promises because God can no more die than He can lie. This was not ultimately a sanction for God's sake. It was for Abram's assurance. And isn't that funny? Because as soon as we get to verse 16, on the heels of God making a promise, ratifying that promise with an oath in the, in the form of a covenant, Abram ends up waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. That's how chapter 16 begins. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. You say, wait a minute, what was the promise? The promise back in chapter 15 was, I want you to look at the heavens, I want you to look at the stars, and I want you to try to count them because that's how many your offspring are going to be. But beginning of chapter 16, Sarah had no children. Hey, what's going on with that? Didn't God promise? Didn't God swear? Didn't the glory of God in theophonic form pass through animals that have been cut in this covenant ceremony? Beloved, can we ever be tempted to think that God's promises work too slowly? As one theologian put it, God is rarely on time, but He's never late. God tested Abram, and Abram forsook God's promise to produce an heir by Sarai and sought to produce an heir with another woman in the power of his own flesh. I can't trust God. I don't trust His promises. I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands if I'm going to bring about this numerous number of offspring. And God, in judgment against Abraham removes his son Ishmael from him. Ishmael born to Hagar, and yet still blesses Hagar, sustains them, and gives Ishmael, turns Ishmael into a mighty nation, a nation that would coincidentally plague Israel for their entire history. One remarkable thing is the Abrahamic narrative doesn't end in chapter 16. One remarkable thing about God's promises is how He brings them to fulfillment for sinners in spite of their sin. 
Is that good news for us? Abram's sin could not thwart God's covenant promises. And that even though Abram was faithless, to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, even though Abram was faithless, God remained faithful because God cannot deny Himself. If anything, that is the overarching theme of chapter 17. If not the overarching theme of Abram's entire life, God's faithfulness, God's grace through covenant. And it's there in chapter 17 that we see God not only repeat the promises of the covenant that He's made, but to expand the covenant. Follow along with me, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Notice we're 24 years into God calling out Abram, promising him offspring, and yet there is still no offspring. And yet he says, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be called the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner, is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Genesis 15 formalized the promise of Genesis 12 to give Abram's offspring the land of Canaan. That same promise is repeated here. Did you see it at the beginning? Such that Abram is now renamed Abraham in keeping with God's promise. But there's more. Here we see in Genesis 17 that the covenant is expanded. And this expansion has two features. It features, first of all, a promise of royalty. And it features, secondly, a demand for loyalty. A promise for royalty and a demand for loyalty. You know you got the ghost when you have good alliteration, or if it rhymes, a promise of royalty and a demand for loyalty. Look up at verse 5. God gave Abram a new name, 
Abraham. And then promised in verse 6 that kings will come from you. He repeats that same promise to Sarah down in verse 16. And then later in chapter 35, God does the same thing with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. He gives Jacob a new name, just like he did with Abraham. That new name is Israel, one who strives with God. And then he repeats the same promise of royalty. Kings will come from your own body. And these footprints, footprints of a promise, lead us then all the way to chapter 49. And it's there where God's covenant promise of royalty and kingship is narrowed down to one of Jacob's or Israel's sons in particular. Listen to this. This is the voice of Israel, the voice of Jacob, speaking prophecies over his son, and he comes to his son, Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Beloved, I want you to marvel at the indestructibility of God's promise. Matthew opens up the entire New Testament with a genealogy that traces God's promise of royalty from Genesis 17 and 49 through David, that is the first king of Judah, all the way to the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the whole New Testament begins in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham, by way of Judah. So God expands His covenant to include a promise of royalty, but He also expands it with a demand for loyalty. Look at verse 9. See that verb there, to keep? That is the same verb that was used all the way back in Genesis 2, and we considered that. When God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it, or to guard it. He says, you have an obligation to guard my covenant. In other words, God is demanding strict obedience. And the way in which they're to keep covenant there in verses 11 to 13 is going to be the circumcision of every male on the eighth day after their birth. Circumcision, he says, is going to end up being the sign of the covenant. And then in verse 16, you notice another sanction, a threat, is added to the covenant. Only this time, the sanctions are not applied to God, but to Abraham and his descendants. God promised to give Canaan to Abraham's offspring as an inheritance, but if they will not obey God's command, then he says they'll be disinherited. The play on words in verse 17 is hard to miss. If you will not cut it off, you will be cut off. That's what he's saying. God is telling Abraham and his family that their generational participation in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant depended on their obedience to God's law. This raises an important question. Is God's covenant with Abraham then an unconditional covenant or a conditional covenant? Will the parties of the Abrahamic covenant enjoy the promises of the covenant by God's faithfulness or by theirs? 
And the answer is yes. True, all the above. Just as God passed through the bisected animals as a self-directed threat, so now God placed Abraham and his descendants under threat. God obligated himself to fulfilling certain unconditional promises, namely taking Abram's offspring into the land, but Israel would be obligated to fulfill certain conditional promises if they wanted to remain in the land and enjoy God's blessing and peace. This is all made obvious by the I will and the you shall language that we've seen here in chapter 17. Then in verses 6 through 8, God outlines the unconditional promises of the covenant. Notice that those promises that He alone is responsible to fulfill. I will. You see that phrase repeated. But then in verses 9 through 10, and again in verse 14, God puts conditions into the covenant. If Abraham and his offspring obey... They'll enjoy blessing in Canaan. If they don't, they'll be cut off from the land. And so the Abrahamic covenant is both unconditional and conditional. It is both a covenant of grace, God alone will accomplish it without their help, and a covenant of works, do this and live. In that sense, it is a dichotomous covenant, one covenant with two parts. And so in the Abrahamic covenant, God then promises both a physical kingdom, that is the kingdom of Israel, and He promises a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And these kingdoms will ultimately be populated by two kinds of offspring. And I'm going to borrow from the Apostle Paul's language from Romans 4, those who share Abraham's flesh and those who share Abraham's faith. And not all who share Abraham's flesh share in Abraham's faith. In other words, the twofold nature of the Abrahamic covenant accomplishes two things. It establishes the old covenant and it reveals the new covenant. In this way, the Abrahamic covenant charts the course for my sermons in the coming weeks. It's the big clue in our Bible scavenger hunt that points us to more clues that will give us more and more and more clarity on the ultimate prize at the end. So hang with me, not only in the weeks to come, but hang with me now. Let me just give you a sense of where we're going. We've just considered Abraham's covenant ratified, but now let's consider God Abraham's covenant realized. And when we do, we want to consider how, first of all, the Abrahamic covenant establishes the old covenant. When I say that the Abrahamic covenant establishes the old covenant, what I mean is that it anticipates those covenants which give form and function to the kingdom of Israel. That is, it anticipates both the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. When I say that it anticipates the Mosaic covenant, what I mean is that it tells and anticipates that the Israelites will be disinherited from their land if they fail to obey God and they break covenant. In this way, the sign of circumcision that we see here in Genesis 17 required obedience to the whole law, the same law that God delivered to them through Moses. So you may remember, for instance, warning the whole church against the dangers of legalism. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, quote, Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole 
law. And so in this, let me just put it this way. While Abram's family was a nomadic people in a strange land, a complete system of laws were unnecessary. But when Abraham's family became a kingdom, God's people in God's place under God's rule, they needed a complex of kingdom laws. And so as soon as Israel began their march toward the promised land and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, God gave them laws through Moses. And everyone who shares in Abraham's flesh, marked off by circumcision, have to obey these laws in order to enjoy the promised inheritance. This means that under the Abrahamic covenant, keeping the condition of circumcision implied more than one simple act of outward obedience. It symbolized full obedience to the whole of God's law from the heart. So God kept His unconditional promise to give Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan. But the nation would only continue to enjoy God's conditional blessings in perpetuity, one generation after another, if they kept covenant with God by obeying His law. If they obeyed, they would enjoy peace and blessing in the land. If they disobeyed and broke covenant, God would disinherit them from the land. And so the Abrahamic covenant makes a demand for loyalty. And that demand anticipated God's conditional covenant with Israel in the land of Canaan. But Abraham's covenant not only made a demand for loyalty, remember, what else did it do? It also made a promise of royalty. And in this way, the covenant not only anticipates the Mosaic covenant, but it also anticipates the Davidic covenant. Recall that God promised that kings would come from Abraham and Sarah. God repeated the promise to Jacob, who then narrowed God's promise in Judah. Centuries later, Israel would enter into Canaan, but they didn't have a human king. God was to be their king. But generation after generation forgot who God was, and it led to a cycle of rebellion. You can see that in the book of Judges. And all throughout that book, In the book of Judges, anticipating the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, through Judah, the book of Judges punctuates Israel's ongoing national obedience, disobedience, with the refrain, and there was no king in Israel. Where's the king that God promised Abraham? Israel needed a king to represent the nation. One who would mediate the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the land by his own lawful obedience. And God finally fulfilled this promise in the shepherd king from the tribe of Judah named David. Just as Adam represented mankind in the garden, so the Davidic kingship would represent Israel and Canaan. And as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And so in both its demand for loyalty... And in its promise of royalty, the entire Old Covenant is defined by the Abrahamic Covenant, conditioned by the Mosaic Covenant, and then focused in the Davidic Covenant. But secondly, not only does it establish the Old Covenant, it reveals the New Covenant. Abraham's Covenant doesn't just establish the Old Covenant. It reveals the new covenant in at least two ways. It promises the new covenant, and it pictures the new covenant. 
On the one hand, God's covenant with Abraham reveals the covenant of grace in its promise to provide the one who will bless the world. This worldwide blessing will come through the new covenant to the nations. And the new covenant is going to be established by Abraham's ultimate seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Now the offspring in view, the way that Paul's writing, the offspring in view here is not those of Abraham's flesh. It's not the kingdom of Israel. It is the true Israel, Jesus Christ. That's why the apostle continues, it does not say, and to offsprings, the nation of Israel, referring to many, but rather referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The Abrahamic covenant doesn't just anticipate the new covenant, but it carries the new covenant in itself. In other words, the old covenant is pregnant with the new covenant. Samuel Rinehan put it this way, the Abrahamic covenant provides Christ, Christ provides the new covenant. And so Abraham's covenant promises the new covenant, and it also pictures it. We've just seen how it promises the new covenant in Christ, but it also pictures it. That the kingdom of Israel established in Abraham, expanded under Moses, and then focused in David, was ultimately a temporary and an earthly pattern of a permanent spiritual reality. God promised Abraham a people, a land, and a kingship. And these promises were fulfilled by God just as He promised initially under the old covenant, in the earthly kingdom of Israel, in the land of Canaan, under a Davidic kingship. All of God's earthly promises to Abram were all fulfilled in the kingdom of Israel under the old covenant. But these earthly fulfillments were not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. All of these earthly covenants given to Israel, were merely a type. They were a pattern that pointed beyond itself to a greater fulfillment in a heavenly covenant that would be made by the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, with His covenant people. Meaning that the kingdom of Israel is not God's endgame. Their great privilege, as established by the Abrahamic covenant, is that the one who will bless the world will be one of their own, and in their covenants, the whole world would see a glimpse, a picture, a three-dimensional prophecy of who that one will be. This means that the role of the Abrahamic covenant then, and of the whole old covenant by implication, is one of temporary guardianship. The Apostle Paul again says this, Galatians chapter 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That is the full revelation of the mystery of Christ in the gospel. And then he says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. That was the purpose of the law. And that's the purpose ultimately for all of the covenants that God made with Israel, under Moses, narrowed in David, was to focus all of their attention as a kind of guardian on their need for faith in a Redeemer. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. That guardian has passed away. It is obsolete. It is unneeded. Because in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are Christ's, get this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The purpose of the Abrahamic covenant was to bring the new covenant into existence by bringing its founder, head, and mediator into existence. The ultimate aim of the Abrahamic covenant is not the kingdom of Israel in the land of Canaan. It is Christ, Abraham's ultimate offspring, and His church. All of those who share Abraham's faith in Christ, including those who share in Abraham's flesh. You say, now wait a minute. Abraham's faith in Christ? Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, did he? Beloved Abraham and all the Old Testament saints understood all of these things. Maybe not completely, but they understood them sufficiently. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 3 that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. What did God preach to Abraham in Genesis 15? Paul says that was the gospel, and he believed the gospel, and he was counted righteous as a result. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews says that by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, those are his sons, heirs with him of the same promise. What promise? The promise of the land on which they're currently standing as sojourners, or something more. The writer says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Not an earthly city, but a heavenly Jerusalem. Abraham believed God's promised covenant of grace. And then Jesus makes the most staggering claim of all, John 8. We read this earlier in our service. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Abraham saw and greeted from afar that which he didn't fully understand, trusting in God's naked word in the form of a promise, and what he hoped in was not ultimately an earthly inheritance in an earthly city, but a heavenly inheritance in a heavenly city of God's people, under God's rule, in God's place, the new Jerusalem. And so God's covenant with Abraham both promises and pictures the new covenant of grace in Christ. And like us, Abraham believed the gospel and was counted righteous in Christ. Why does all this matter? Let me just give you a few implications to close our time. First, a right understanding of the Abrahamic covenant helps us rightly understand the relationship between faith and works. We've already observed that circumcision contains the entire law in miniature. This helps us understand Paul's question in Romans 4. How was Abraham counted righteous? Was it before or was it after he was circumcised. Let's do the math. Abraham believed the gospel when it was preached to him in Genesis 15, 
And in verse 6 of Genesis 15, God counted him righteous, counted righteous by faith alone in the very promise of God that finds their yes and amen in Christ. Abraham then received circumcision in Genesis 17. Now, I had to take college algebra four times, and so I'm no math whiz. But I'm pretty sure Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. And if that's the case, then here's what Paul's arguing. Faith then comes before works. And in light of that, the apostle then draws out two implications for us. He says, first then, if that's the case, if that was the case for Abraham, then you and I can never say that we are saved by the works of the law, by our own obedience, by our own righteousness before God, but rather we are saved by faith in Christ and His righteousness. Because in a general sense, Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17, the promise before the law. Sinners are saved by grace through faith in Christ, according to God's covenant of grace, not by works of the law, but second, not all those who share Abraham's flesh share in Abraham's faith. And only those who share in Abraham's faith are finally counted as Abraham's offspring, true heirs according to promise. And that leads me to a second application. The Abrahamic covenant not only helps us rightly understand the relationship between faith and works, that we are saved by faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works of the law. But it also, secondly, helps us rightly distinguish between Israel and the church. Let's get this straight, because there's lots of confusion out there on this. Covenant theology rejects two opposing views. On the one extreme, the church does not replace theocratic Israel, nor is theocratic Israel the church. So if anybody says that's what covenant theology believes, you can go, nope, that's not what it believes. But secondly, theocratic Israel and the church are distinct. They're not the same. One doesn't replace the other. They are distinct. And yet in those distinctions, the church is not a distinct people alongside Israel, as if God has two distinct plans for two distinct people. So some of our old dispensationalist friends might argue. Some people argue that the church is the parentheses in God's plan for Israel. Israel rejected Christ. God chose the church to make Israel jealous. And then after God raptures His church, His plan for theocratic Israel is going to be taken up again. But if what we've seen today in the Abrahamic covenant is true, that the kingdom of Israel under the old covenant was an earthly people with an earthly inheritance that typified a heavenly people with a heavenly inheritance, then it's not the church that it's parentheses, it's theocratic Israel. Which is to say that the church is not a people in place of theocratic Israel or alongside Israel or parenthetical to Israel. To the contrary, God's one covenant of grace which is comprised of every person in every age who are brought by God's grace to believe in the gospel. This one covenant of grace is revealed prior to Israel to Adam and to Abraham in Israel through Moses and David and farther steps and afterwards through full revelation of Christ and His church in the new covenant. 
In other words, God's church, hidden in the old covenant as a mystery revealed in the new covenant through the gospel, preceded Israel, was hidden within Israel of all of Abraham's flesh who believed, and was fully revealed in the new covenant as all of the nations are gathered in by the very same faith in Christ. We're going to consider more of that in my sermon on the Mosaic Covenant next week. But my third application. The Abrahamic Covenant is not a political philosophy. Some Christian theological frameworks demand from Genesis 12 that individuals or nations bless rather than curse the physical nation of Israel so that they might be blessed rather than cursed by God. Allying oneself or one's nation with Israel is to effectively ally oneself with God in the world. But a proper understanding of the Abrahamic covenant not only proves that this view is not only false, but potentially dangerous for several reasons. First, it unhitches the covenants of promise given to Abraham and Israel under the old covenant from their fulfillment in Christ and the new covenant. The nations aren't blessed by blessing Israel, ultimately. They are blessed, Psalm 2, by kissing the Son, the only one in whom the nations may be blessed. Second, this kind of unhitching concludes that the earthly fulfillments of Genesis 12 in Israel under the Old Covenant of individuals or nations being cursed or blessed by God by cursing or blessing Israel are really the ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 12. But when we read and apply the Old Testament in this way, in a wooden literal way, then we end up reading parts of the Old Testament, like Genesis 12, as if the New Testament never happened. And that's a dangerous way to read the Bible. Thirdly, and consequently, when we read and apply the Old Testament literally, as if the, Old Test- as if the New Testament didn't happen, we risk re-enslaving believers to the yoke of bondage from which they've been freed. We tell them not only that the demands of the old covenant are still binding on them, you better bless Israel, don't curse Israel, if you want to be blessed by God instead of cursed by God, but that their obedience is then offered under the threat of cursing or the promise of blessing. But beloved, You need to hear me on this. Christ has already become a curse for us. He has already exhausted all of God's curses against us at the cross. And when we were brought to repent of our sin and believe in Him by God's grace, we were blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Him such that there are no more curses to fear and there are no more blessings to earn than what has already been exhausted in Christ and given to us by His grace. Now, when we look to Abraham, we don't look to Israel anymore. When we look to Abraham, we look to Christ. Abraham's ultimate offspring and the true Israel 
as our only hope in life and death. Let's pray.